Okay. <laughs> well, let's pray. <laughs> we definitely need to do that. <clears throat> Father God, uh, we rightly just sang praises to you and your son and your spirit. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we pray that you would encourage us through it, encourage our graduates. Father, even as that video said, we want the success that you want, not as the world wants, in their lives. And we pray that you would draw them closer and closer to you. And they might be your witnesses as we read in Acts, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you would do great things for your glory through them. Have your hand upon each of these graduates and each of us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, congratulations, graduates. We are proud of you, excited uh, to see what God does in and through you in the next steps and stages of your life. As I thought of you graduates, I thought of something called Mosa Bamboo. I don't know if you know anything about Mosa Bamboo. There'll be a video playing as I talk about it. But Mosa Bamboo, for its first five years, looks like a seedling. It's about the same height, barely off the ground, for five straight years. But that's not all that's going on. It's developing an incredible root system that if you put the roots side by side, it would be seven, several miles long. It's also sending out runners underneath the ground where additional bamboo will come up. But in year six, in year six, it will grow two and a half feet per day for six to eight weeks, reaching a height of 90 feet. And the bamboo will be used to construct furniture and houses the world over. It will be incredibly strong. And it's that root system, several miles of roots, that supports the bamboo, the runners, even to the height of 90 feet. I think that's a lot of what has gone on in your life. For the last 17, 18, 19 years, you have been under the watchful eyes of mom and dad, of grandparents, of teachers, of youth pastors, minimal value. <laughs> you have been under the watchful eyes of all of these individuals, and they have been building in you a great root system. If you were wise, I trust you are and were, that root system is filled with Jesus. It's filled with the word of Jesus. You have memorized scriptures. You have learned biblical accounts. You know morals and ethics. You know what God desires. You have been living lives that worship him. But you're about to set out. Whether it's in the military, a gap year, the workforce, a dorm room, you're about to set out and you've got to do the bidding of the Lord. It was Pastor Rico who was asked by a wise woman this question. Pastor Rico, do you know what failure is? 
And do you know what success is? Now, when you're ever asked an open-ended question like that, you don't really know how to answer it. He did a great job. He said, why don't you tell me? And the woman said this, failure is doing things that are called success that have no lasting value. That's failure. Failure is doing things called success that has no lasting value. Success is hearing the words well done by the only lips that ultimately matter. That's success. Sometimes the church gets this wrong. Sometimes Christ followers get this wrong. We think that success is degrees earned, portfolios expanded, titles given. Those are not unimportant. I don't want to suggest that they are unimportant. They open doors. They provide opportunities. We ought to pursue them. But ultimate success is hearing the word well done by the only mouth, Jesus, that really matters. That means knowing the word, doing the word, living the word, sharing the word with others. Now the text that pastors Jared and Andrew chose today is from Ezra 7, 9 and 10. They told me they would trust me to read the text and then they would give me four minutes to actually explain the entire book of Ezra. That's what they gave me. That's charity. Well, let me read from Ezra 7, 9 and 10. It says this. For on the first day of the first month, he, that's Ezra, he's a priest, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. I got four minutes to set the scene. Start the clocks. Start the clocks. A number of years ago, almost three millennia ago, there were 12 tribes and they were called Israel. But there was a great division in 930 BC, essentially a civil war, and the 10 northern tribes seceded, they left the union, and they retained the name Israel. And they lasted for 208 years. For 208 years, they utterly disobeyed God. They did not have one godly leader, not one who was a king or queen. For 208 years, they ignored God's morality, they ignored God's ethics. And finally, God said, I will give you into the hands of your desires. And in 722, he allowed the Assyrians to come to capture them and really to take them away. Now we know that those 10 northern tribes are going to reappear. We read about it in Revelation 7. But right now there is no Jew that can identify themselves accurately as from the 10 northern tribes. For all intents and purposes, they have ceased to exist. The two southern tribes are Judah. And they were going to be given an extra 144 years. 
So they were given a total of 344 years or a little bit beyond that and understand that they were only one-third faithful. One-third of the time they followed God and two-thirds of the time they were utterly disobedient. And yet God, who was slow to anger and abounding in love, gave them about 350 years until they were utterly disobedient. And finally God said, enough is enough. And in 605 BC, in 586 BC, he sent the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to ransack Judah and to carry the nobility into exile. You know something about that. Because some individuals who were carried into exile are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were in exile for about 70 years. Some of the people were born in exile. And then God said, I'm going to be gracious to you. He's a slow to anger, abounding in love God. And he allowed them to start coming back. And the first wave was under a governor named Zerubbabel. He's a good guy. And he comes back with one of those small little prophets in the Old Testament, Haggai. And Zerubbabel and Haggai come back. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the center where the people can worship once again. But there's no priest. In the second wave, five or 458, the priest Ezra comes back. And Ezra begins Bible studies. He begins preaching. He begins corporate worship. He begins all sorts of means of building up the believers. And there is revival. The slow to anger and abounding in love God who has seen 10 northern tribes never obey, two southern tribes only obey one third of the time, allows them to come back in the land to rebuild the temple to start to have Bible studies, to start to worship, to gather corporately. And there is revival. Failure. Failure is being successful in things that don't ultimately matter. Success is hearing the words well done from the lips, Jesus, that only ultimately matter. We need Ezra's in our lives and we need to listen to the Ezra's in our lives to build in the right direction. Well, with that historical background in mind, let's go ahead and reread our passage for this morning. Here's what Ezra 7, 9 through 10 says. For on the first day of the month, Ezra began to go up from Babylonia, the place that he's lived. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. He completed his journey. And he was able to do that because the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now remember, this passage in Ezra uh, is centering on the time when Ezra the priest is entering into a massive season of transition. He's leaving the only home that he's ever known, Babylon, and going to a new place that he's only heard stories of, the city of Jerusalem. And once Ezra leaves Babylon, he really is entering into a new and exciting chapter of his life. However, it's also a chapter that's a little bit daunting because the mission that he's been given will not easily be accomplished. 
And that's really the reason that we chose this passage for you all today on graduation Sunday, because there's quite a few parallels between your life and Ezra. Just like Ezra, you are on the cusp of entering into a season of immense transition. Whether you're entering the military, the workforce, a gap year, the academy, your life is going to look significantly different than it has for the past 18 or so years. And just like Ezra, you're also preparing to leave the comforts and securities of your childhood home. You're going to a new place that's going to be fun and different, but also scary at times. You're also leaving adolescence behind and entering into adulthood. And just like Ezra, this transition will usher in a new chapter of life that's that strange combination of exciting yet scary. And our greatest desire is to see you navigate this transition successfully. We want to see you wholeheartedly follow the Lord in your post-high school years. But how can you do this? How can you navigate a season of transition well? Well, thankfully, I think Ezra shows us how to do that. Notice a key phrase at the end of verse 9. It says that the good hand of God was on Ezra. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm entering into a season of transition, I would very much like to hear the good hand of God was upon me during that time. That sounds a lot better than Andrew was wandering around aimlessly and made, you know, a mess of his life. I'd rather hear the good hand of God was upon me. And Curiously, in verse 10, we see exactly why God's good hand was upon Ezra. The purpose statement there is because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. Returning to what Pastor Jeff said earlier, Ezra had purposed in his heart to pursue true success instead of the cultural's counterfeits of what success actually looks like. Above all, Ezra had decided that he wanted to use his time and his talents and his treasures for the furtherment of God's kingdom, for the building up of other followers of the Lord, and ultimately to bring God glory. Ezra did this because he was firmly and deeply rooted in God's inspired and errant word. From a young age, he had set his heart to study the word, to obey the word, and to teach the word. So the secret for successfully navigating this transition from adolescence into adulthood, it's simply making sure that you are deeply and firmly rooted in the word of God in, in the Bible. According to this passage, you can do that by studying the word, obeying the word, and then teaching the word. Pastor Jared's going to look at the latter two of doing and teaching, but I'm going to focus in on that first word of studying the word of the Lord. If we're going to be firmly and deeply rooted in God's word, we have to study it. Now notice that Ezra purposefully chose the word study. He didn't say skim the information. He said study it. And as you'll learn in college, there's a difference between skimming and studying. If you don't learn that, you'll learn it after your first D or F on a test, right? Reading is not the same thing as studying. Uh, consulting something occasionally is not the same thing as studying. Hearing somebody else talk about something is not the same thing as personal study. Study is far deeper than those words, and that's the word that Ezra chose. He said, we need to study the word of God. Yet there's a lot of Christ followers who have never taken the initiative to study God's word for their own. If that's true, we need to ask an important question. What holds us back from studying God's word? And there's probably a ton of different reasons, but I want to focus on three barriers, three things that might hold us back from studying God's word. 
motivation, prioritization, and intimidation. Let's consider the first one, motivation. We have to stay motivated and we are only going to stay motivated when we see the long-term value of studying God's word for our lives. If we don't see the long-term value, inevitably studying God's word is going to be a chore and a chore that's quickly discarded when life gets busy. But we need to realize that God does not command us to study his word because he likes to just assign random busy work that has no meaning. Now you're going to have professors that like to give you random busy work that has no actual purpose, but that's not God's mode of operation. God calls us to study his word because within his word are the only directions for how we can pursue a fulfilling and meaningful and ultimately fruitful life. He wants to spare us the pain and damage of uh, steering away from the Lord and taking a prodigal turn in your adulthood and all of the brokenness that it inevitably brings. Just consider how three of the wisest people in all of scripture, David Solomon and the apostle Paul speak about the law of the Lord. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Solomon writes, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Make sure you're listening to the word of God, and he will direct your paths. He will make your paths straight. David says in Psalm 19, 10 through 11, More to be desired are they, that being the laws and statutes of the Lord, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter to me are they than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which you should be familiar with from G180 this last fall, Paul tells us that all scripture is breathed out, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable in your life, specifically for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that you, the man or woman of God, might be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. We stay motivated to study scripture by remembering its immense value. So we need to contemplate often the necessity of God's word in our life. But here's a second barrier, prioritization. Whoa. I, yeah. That's six syllables. Not bad for a Cedarville That's, grad. What's that supposed <laughs> to mean? That's what I'm talking about. Six, that is six syllables. Cedarville resents that comment. And prioritization. Uh, yeah, this is six syllables. There you go. I think that many Christ followers treat Bible study like diet and exercise in our life. We know it's important. We know we should do it, but we just kind of never find the time and it isn't as high of a priority as it should be. And if we want to be students of God's word, we have to see Bible study as a non-negotiable priority in our life. In the next season of life, you guys are going to be busier than ever before. I know you felt like high school was busy. It's nothing compared to college. College is going to be busier. There's going to be things to pursue. There's going to be academics to study. There's going to be all sorts of options and your calendars are going to be crammed full. And if you are hoping to squeak in some Bible study and worship in the margin of your free time, realize you're just never going to study the Bible because the urgent is always going to shove out the important in your life if we aren't disciplined. So to stay disciplined, we have to make God's word a high priority in seasons of transitions. And there's, here, here's an easy plan for how to do that. There's four P's to keep in mind. You need to pick a place, you need to pick a period, you need to pick a plan, and you need to pick a partner. So let's go through each of those. You need to pick a place where you won't be distracted. 
Preferably one where someone's not going to burst in and preferably one without your cell phones. You want somewhere where you can be undistracted when you're studying the word. Second, you need to pick a period of time. It doesn't have to be three hours. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, but set aside 20 minutes in the morning. This is my time each day. I'm going to block in my calendar to study God's word. Third, pick a partner. Meet, uh, pick someone that you can meet up with each week and you can share and discuss what you've been learning because that accountability is key. And then lastly, pick a plan. You don't want to read the Bible by doing the old, just drop the Bible and see what it opens to. And uh, you have no idea what's going on and you read a verse or two and that's good. No, pick, pick a plan that helps you systematically work through a section of, of the Bible because that's how it's meant to be read. If you do those things, you'll be amazed at how naturally studying the Bible can become. But here's a third barrier that can hold us back from Bible study, intimidation. It can be intimidating to read the Bible. It's a huge book, it's complex, it's diverse, it has different genres and backgrounds, and if you're unacquainted with it, it can be intimidating at first, and sometimes we feel overwhelmed so we don't even try. If that's where you are, we wanna help you overcome that intimidation. Your graduation gift was purposeful. You either got an ESV study Bible or a Bible commentary. Both of those are tools that if rightly used can help you understand God's word and better study it. Use them often. I know that commentary is like massive and weighs 10 pounds, but please use it more than a door stopper for your college dorm room. Don't let collect dust. Don't leave it behind at home. Crack it open, use it, mark it up, and make sure that you are using those tools well. Not only that, one of the best ways to learn how to study the Bible is by meeting up with other people who study it well. Find a mentor who you can do a Bible stay with. Enroll in crew or InterVarsity or, or Navigators and do it the first week of college. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. So find a way to surround yourself with people that you can learn from. Don't let intimidation hold you back. With enough perseverance and practice, anyone, anyone, can learn how to read and study and apply God's word to their life. And that really brings us to Jared's section because we don't want to stop at studying God's word. We also want to apply it to our lives and then pass it along to others. Yes, with the remaining time we have, we want to really continue the recipe that Reservoir gives us and we connect the dots between the life of the believer and the message of the scriptures where they connect and are unified. A way to, to not only not be hypocrites, but to truly live this life that God has asked us to live and to bring others along as we journey through it. You see, with Ezra, we see that we're, we're not uh, only called to study and to do, but ultimately, we're also called to teach his statutes and his rules. And really what this does is it takes us from being a consumer, sitting in service, going to a, a small group of sorts, and, and consuming the word, maybe private Bible study, where we're just... It, it, eating the word of God, we, we, are, we are consuming what God has for us, but then also to take the knowledge we acquire and, and then allow wisdom to flow through. That's taking the knowledge that we have and we apply it to everyday life. And we don't want to just stop there because it's one thing to, to live for Jesus. It's another thing to make disciples as we go, to teach others how uh, to live for Jesus and what the scriptures have to say. Ultimately, this is a very plain call for us. We are called as we move forth from this day to make disciples. As you're going into higher education or the military uh, workforce or the gap year, make disciples. Disciple making is studying the word of God, which is nourishing your soul. It's applying it to your life and that's living like Jesus. And it's taking your faith serious enough to intentionally develop somebody else. Consider this. For some of you, you kind of have in mind 
what things are going to be like when you have to go to that rigorous college uh, class that you're about to uh, start. You're aware of perhaps of the amount of time, or at least you think you're aware of the amount of time you'll be spending reading or digesting of the material or the quizzing and the testing. You're uh, trying to remember material for certain classes that you're about to endure. You see, you understand that by taking your future seriously, by whether investing in a trade or a craft or, or uh, pursuing military endeavors or, or, or bettering yourself through education, whatever it is that you're about to uh, pursue, you understand that by doing that, you are investing in yourself and your future. By taking time to invest in your education and your future, there's this belief that you will one day become a better fill-in-the-blank whatever that is that you're pursuing. But now consider the high calling uh, that's in your life as a Christ follower. Connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament, when we look at what we are called to, we see Jesus' words in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. It's kind of the same recipe we see here in Ezra. Be on the screen, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, in this passage, Jesus had already lived. He'd already been arrested. He'd already died. He'd already resurrected. And now he's showing up to his disciples. See, these are the last words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father where he is still seated today. And with his final words, he lays out his desire and his command for his followers. Plainly, this is what Jesus expects of you and I as Christians in all seasons of life. You see, this is not simply a calling of a pastor or a religious leader, a life group leader or a Sunday school teacher. This is a calling for every Christ follower. As we are going along life, we are to make disciples. You see, we actively engage the world around us and we teach others the laws and statutes and the things that Jesus has commanded. That is our calling. And we can do this in a number of ways. I'll highlight maybe three of them. First, we are to actively seek the lost. We're to evangelize. We are to introduce people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. We tell people who don't know Jesus that God loves them, that he has made himself known, and that he offers eternal life that's found only in Jesus. Secondly, perhaps we find accountability partners. Now, Andrew spoke a little bit about that with, uh, when it comes to studying God's word, but accountability is so much more than simply tattling on yourself or feeling bad about your sin. It's regularly reminding one another of what God has to say about our sin struggles it's about having a partner in the trench, a brother or sister in arms as we engage the spiritual battle that we're all involved in. It's lifting one another up in prayer and teaching one another what, it, what God has to say about the temptations that we're facing. It's having someone to go to when you feel like you have no one else to go to. It's that person that doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. It's that person that connects you and the Lord. And lastly, it's finding somebody who's younger, whether uh, maybe age-wise or in the faith, um, and to begin mentoring them. You know, we all have someone who's looking at us in one way or another, but I've learned something in 12 years of being a youth pastor. 
when you know someone's watching you and you know someone's turning to you for answers and you understand that what you say or don't say, how you behave online or in person, in your weak moments, it, it kind of helps you sharpen a little bit. It helps you keep shorter accounts with the Lord. It helps you um, ensure that you're living a little more like Jesus. You see, when you and I begin to enter those disciple-making relationships and we understand that there's a weight of those relationships when we know someone else is looking to us, uh, not for all the answers, but simply to model living for Jesus well, it does something amazing in us and through us. God uses that to sharpen us. Many of you have gone through um, the church. You've had your parents read Bible bedtime stories. You maybe had one-way club leaders. You've had life group leaders uh, in G180. You've had Sunday school teachers. You've had different ministries, uh, whether in the public or the private school. You've been able to enjoy a lot of people discipling you and pointing you to Jesus. If you're here today as a graduating senior and you haven't identified that person who uh, perhaps you can help uh, carry along, someone you can help bring a little closer to Jesus, not through your own good works, not through your own uh, merit, but just connecting the dots, helping them um, along, coming alongside of them in the faith, today's the day to start. And like Andrew said, jumping right into college or the next season, do it right away when it comes to identifying that time, prioritizing, reading God's word. The same goes for being developed into as a Christ follower, but also pouring into someone else as a Christ follower. So the last few minutes, we want to spend some time just giving little tidbits of advice that uh, perhaps might be helpful in the days ahead. Pastor Jeff, would you go ahead and jump in? My advice for you is if you are a Christ follower, be a Christ follower. A Christ follower is someone who has come to the end of themselves, recognize that one is a sinner and the attitude, action, thought, motive Inactivity outside the will of God is sin. And we know that our sin will keep us from a holy God. And that's why the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, went to the cross. He died for our sin, conquered death, rose again on the third day. That if by faith we would believe in Christ, receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. But we do not only receive him as Savior, but as Lord if you are a Christ follower, live as a Christ follower. Be sold out for Jesus. You're about to go into the workforce, the military, a gap year, the academy, and there are lots of things that are going to take up your time. You could allow all of your time to be consumed by academics. I believe in academics. I have 14 years beyond high school. I believe in academics, but it can't dominate your life. You are going to have individuals who, their lives are dominated by work. I believe in work, but it can't dominate your life. You'll be around people who are dominated by passions and recreation. We all need passions and recreation but it should not dominate our lives. Christ must dominate our lives. If you are a Christ follower, make Christ the priority. 
And you got to do it before the next step because that next step is going to come fast and hard and you might be overwhelmed. You need to make Christ the rock of your life now. I think of what Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15. He said, choose you today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You got to choose. You got to choose. You say, well, my next step might be a Christian college. I went from a public school to a Christian college. I saw as many sins at a Christian college as I did in high school. A little less maybe in graduate school at seminary and a little bit less the step after that. But no matter where you go. The military... I grew up in a military family, lots of sin. Academia, lots of sin. Work, won't matter what job you're in, it really won't matter, lots of sin. <laughs> it will not matter. Choose today who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Failure, failure is success that doesn't ultimately matter. Success is hearing well done from the only lips that ultimately matter, and that's your savior, Jesus Christ. Choose success. Here's my piece of practical wisdom. I really encourage you all to observe the spiritual practice of Sabbath in this next stage of life. If you went through transitions with me, you know that this is one of the things that I really emphasize. But the theme of Sabbath rest fills the Bible from cover to uh, cover. To cover. God really models it even in the creation narrative. For six days, he creates, he's productive, but then on the seventh day, he ceases from his productive work and rests. God didn't need to rest. That was given as a pattern for how we ought to function in our lives as well. This idea of a, a day of rest, both physically and spiritually, to be rekindled in our love for God and just to, to be re-energized, to go back and be productive is key in our lives. Because the reality is in this next season of life, you're going to be busier than ever before. The temptation is going to be to cram your calendar so full that you have no margin left. But the problem is when you do that, first of all, you're going to burn out physically. But second of all, you're going to burn out spiritually. Your spiritual habits are going to die down. Your love for the Lord will dissipate because you can't be still and know that God is Lord if you're never still. We live in a culture that uses busyness as a badge of honor. And you're going to find that in the next season of life. People like to say, look at how busy I am. Look at how important I am. Your busyness does not equate to your importance. It just doesn't. Nowhere in the Bible does God commend busyness. He commends productivity. He commends faithfulness. But that's very different than busyness. Be productive absolutely six days a week. Work hard. Get good grades. Put your best in at your job. But you have to have margin for Sabbath as well. There's two times in my life where I thought I was too busy for Sabbath rest. Both of them ended with spiritual and physical burnout and trips to the hospital. That's not what you want to do. A smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others and never has to go through that experience themselves. Be a wise person and learn from our mistakes. 
If you're too busy for physical and spiritual Sabbath, realize your priorities need to change because something's out of alignment. It has to be a non-negotiable. And again, remember the refrain of what our message this morning has been. Failure is succeeding at the wrong things. It really is. Uh, But success is succeeding at hearing well done, good and faithful servant. And a big piece of that is having spiritual Sabbath in your life. Yeah, I was reminded um, when my favorite professors in undergrad shared with us um, what a famous missionary said um, in the face of hardship and living in a foreign country. Amy Carmichael um, said this, for a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. Now, it's a bit of old English, but it simply says, a glass can only spill what it contains. And when we consider who Amy Carmichael was and what she did, the, the, this quote's quite convicting, at least to me. You see, Amy was a missionary to India for 55 years without a furlough. Now, a furlough is a time when missionaries come back home and maybe they visit people who support them financially or prayerfully. They take time to either maybe raise some more funds or they take time to rest and restore and kind of refill that spiritual tank so they can go back to the mission field and serve well. And she served faithfully in India for 55 years with no furlough. Her primary work in India was working with young ladies whose families dropped um, them off to the temples of the false Hindu gods. And as a way to make money for the temple and the priests, they would prostitute these children. That was her primary responsibility, was ministering to the situation. As you can imagine, Amy Carmichael was harassed. She had her life threatened. And when she received a letter from a young girl asking about what missionary life was like in hopes to maybe one day become one, she simply wrote back, Missionary life is simply a chance to die. You see, Amy Carmichael was an incredible woman, and her story is an incredible story. However, her calling is not unique to her. See, her story is our story. And today the Lord may not be calling you to India or, or overseas, maybe he is, but the idea is you and I are called wherever we may go to live on mission. You and I are called to seek and serve Jesus, to seek and serve him above all else, and to tell others of the good news of our risen Lord and Savior. You see, you and I are called to tell the world about Jesus and to teach them what he has commanded. Your circumstances are changing. You're no longer high school students. You're entering adulthood. However, your calling remains the same. And to use Amy's analogy, the sweet water that we contain as Christians is the gospel of peace. It's the message of the cross and Christ crucified and our risen Savior resurrected, offering eternal life, and it's only found in Jesus. And no matter how suddenly jolted your life becomes, whether that's a year from now when you realize your plans today didn't actually come to be the way you thought they would, or you find yourself wondering what in the world is happening and you kind of wish you would kind of go back in time and be back to days like today. The reality is 
is when you and I apply what we've heard today, the, the recipe found in Ezra 7, the recipe given to us in Scripture when we seek Jesus above all else and we, we tell others about him, when we live for him and are sold out wholeheartedly, the sweet water that spills out of us is the sweet water that the Lord has given us and has called us to pour out into others. Today we've looked at a few ways to fill up with the right stuff. When jolted, a cup can only spill what it contains. When you're jolted, what do you spill? And what will you spill in one, three, six, nine, twelve months from now? We urge you once again to live your life successfully. Successful life is a a life that's spent in such a way that it allows you and I to hear, well done, from the only lips that ultimately matter. We love you guys. The class of 2022, we couldn't be more proud. It's been a privilege to be your youth pastors and your leaders, and you have a lot of people in your corner. We cannot wait to see what the Lord will do in and through you we're so excited and we're so blessed to be part of just a little bit of what God's done in your life. Pastor Angie, would you pray for them and pray as we close our service? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we've had the opportunity to celebrate our graduates. We've just had the opportunity to challenge our graduates, but now we're excited to commission our graduates. We recognize that some of them will be staying local. Some of them will be traveling across the state. Some of them will be moving across the U.S. Uh, It's fun to see where you are sending each and one of these 37 graduates. And we recognize that wherever they land, uh, we truly desire for them to pursue the right kind of success. Allow them to be commissioned to go out as kingdom influencers and disciple makers in the varied places that you call them. Allow them to regularly evaluate their lives and make sure that they are pursuing the things that are successful in the eyes of you and your kingdom. We recognize that we can get straight A's and not be a success. We recognize that we can get the big promotion and not be a success. We can do a multitude of things that our culture values and not be successful if We are not living in a way that we will hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. So more than anything, we ask that your good hand of blessing might be upon our graduates as they set their hearts to study the law of the Lord, to obey it and to teach it to others. Allow them to live in a way that's both good and faithful. We love them, we entrust them to you and we look forward to continuing celebrating them this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.